0: Hugh Design Summit returns July 26 29th as a four-day unconference created for designers and developers of color, bringing curated conversations and workshops in an environment providing the space and tools necessary to advance in the ever-changing world of technology. This summer, Hugh will explore design heritage, past, present, and future, with a special keynote presentation from the legendary Gail Anderson. There'll also be topic-driven fireside chats about the impact of design education and networking, Plus, Revision Path is sponsoring this year's event. So for more information about Hugh Design Summit, check them out at HughDesignSummit.com. This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. You've heard of Facebook, right? Huge site, over 2 billion people visiting it every day. But what's it like actually working there? I talked with design program manager Marcy Quintana to find out.
1: I think that I love working here because we're such a global company, you know, just making sure that we're empathetic towards people and really understanding all different perspectives. Really, the culture of giving and receiving feedback. I think all of those things really make Facebook an amazing place to work. It's more of like the values, I think, than anything else
0: that uh, really make me love working here. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. This week, Project 202 is looking for a senior experience researcher in Seattle, Washington. And 4 Winds Interactive is looking for an art director in Denver, Colorado. We also have job listings from Indeed.com, so head to the Revision Path Job Board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to apply and to search for any other listings. Don't forget to sign up for weekly job alerts so when there are new positions added to the job board, you'll get an email so you can be the first to apply. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I just wanted to remind you again that we've launched a brand new advice column on Revision Path called Ask Saida. Saida is Saida Mitchum. She's a longtime friend to the show. You might remember her from episode 27. She's a designer, she's an entrepreneur. And you know, many of you write into the show with questions and now Saida is here to help respond to them. So any questions you have about career choices, uh, business advice, design, etc., ask Saida. Uh, her first column is up on the blog right now. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. And if you have questions for her, send them to her at asksaida at revisionpath.com. That's S-I-E-D-A-H, Ask Saida. Um, I'll put that email address in the show notes also. So send us your questions and we may answer them in a future column. Now let's talk about our sponsors, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. Glitch is a friendly community where you'll build the web app of your dreams. So whether it's beautiful digital art, handy tools to help you do your work, or a site for your project or cause, you'll find things on Glitch that reminds us that the web can still be a fun, creative place full of unexpected surprises. So what will you create today? Get started at Glitch.com. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's leading marketing platform for small businesses. Millions of people and businesses around the world trust MailChimp to publish the right content to the right person at the right place at the right time. Build your brand, sell more stuff, find your people, and tell the world your story. Sign up for a free account today and give it a try. MailChimp. Send better email. Now for this week's interview, we're talking to Shaw Struthers, UX designer, UX researcher, and UX lead at User Insight here in Atlanta, Georgia. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do.
1: My name is Shaw Struthers. I am a user experience lead at a company called User Insight. It's a UX research and design consultancy in Atlanta, Georgia.
0: Walk me through a typical day. What kind of stuff do you do there as the UX lead?
1: So we do a little bit of everything. We do research, so talking to users of various products, both kind of digital and physical, to understand their issues and delights with clients' products. Once we kind of get feedback from them about things that are giving people trouble, we provide recommendations for how to fix those things, and quite often that includes designing uh, what those solutions would be and you know sometimes making prototypes sometimes making you know physical models sometimes making digital comps that type of thing so depending on you know what our clients need to address the issues
0: (laughs) i feel like ux is a field that has really kind of blown up within the past almost 10 years now i think there's been this really increased awareness of the field why do you think that's the case
1: i think you're right i think it it comes from the market has changed and there's there's just a lot of competition out there. And if you can't compete on price and you can't compete on features, the next best thing to compete on is the experience that you provide for your customers, right? And so if you think about UX, really, a lot of times people focus on the interface or you know the look of or feel of the app or, or, the, or the website, but really if you think more broadly it's it's everywhere between the user's first interaction with the company and making that sale i guess and 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 everything in between
0: yeah i know sometimes when i talk to like freelancers and stuff like that i always tell them to try to make sure they're adding more strategy to the work that they're doing cuz I mean, I think any designer, well, if we're talking about like web designer, graphic designer, et cetera, any designer can show that they're like competent in how to use Photoshop or whatever. And I think, you know, if they're trying to find clients or trying to find work, that's not enough. You have to be able to kind of show that you can do more than that, like how you can be an asset to their project and really be able to help them succeed.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you can't think so myopically, really. As designers, you know, depending on the industry, you're pretty much a future teller. You're looking at where the market is, where the products in the market are, and you're trying to come up with what people will like at some point in the future. And <laughs> being able to do that well is really a, a talent.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. So what's your process when you're coming up like to a new project? How do you approach a new project?
1: All my new projects start with research. It's really, really difficult to come up with a, a, a viable solution if you don't really understand, you know, what's been done in the past, what is being done currently, what the client would really like to see happen in the future, uh, and kind of understand all the all the various issues and problems and, and desires that they have for their company uh, moving forward. So kind of getting into the details with the stakeholders within the company getting into the details with the stakeholders outside of the company so the the customers in some cases getting into the details with kind of third party stakeholders so the purchasers in some cases where the person who's going to be using the product is not actually the person who's required who's responsible for making the purchase or acquiring the product Just kind of getting an understanding as deeply as I can for all of those different people involved with the product or service is where I like to start. And that really forms the basis of knowledge for what I need to to have to move forward with coming up with solutions for those issues that they've placed in front of us.
0: So for designers that are listening to this, that kind of want to start... Using more UX in their work, whether it's doing interviews or stuff like that, what kind of resources would you recommend for them?
1: Oh there's a lot psychology is is one thing that was really helpful for me when I was in school. I took several cognitive psychology classes, so that comes into the some of the uh, visual design and that type of thing along the same lines, just being able to talk to people and understanding. Behaviors and how people make decisions uh, is really key. Because at the end of the day, in most cases, if you're a company and you're selling a product or a service, what you're really trying to do is convince your potential customers to become actual customers. Mm-hmm. And so understanding how people make decisions and what information they need in order to make that decision is really critical in order to convince them to actually buy what you're selling. Those are the, I guess those are the the biggest things to, to start with. Once you're able to kind of take that time and talk to people and understand um, what their motivations are, what their desires are for a particular product or service, then you can start to craft, you know, something that will solve their issues.
0: Yeah. Sometimes I will hear people kind of talk about that research part as being like, quote unquote, a soft skill. I know even when I had my studio i ran a studio for about nine years called lunch and Uh we would offer you know some sort of like ux component to i wouldn't even call it ux it's more so just user research before we started doing any design work so we would do user testing and we would do interviews and talk to people and it always amazed me how nearly every single client pushed back on that at the (laughs) beginning I think, one, because it was an additional cost. Like, for example, if they need a website, they're like, well, why do we have to talk to people? Uh-huh. And it's like because your website is not just for you. It's for your customers or you're trying to raise money or you're trying to do something to spur other people into action. I just found it kind of funny that that would be the one thing that people would would kind of try to push back on for some reason.
1: Absolutely. It's really Funny how frequently that happens, and not until not until you come back with some groundbreaking revelation um, or quotes from their customers that completely contradicts the th- line of thinking that they have, that they see the value, right? Yeah. A lot of times, you know, like you, like you said, a lot of times people push back and they're like, they can't they can't understand the value because it's it's hard to place an ROI on. Uh, on that type of research unless and until you have something that says i absolutely would not buy this thing (laughs) the way you've designed it or the way or the way you're proposing to to release it and you have you know multiple people saying that that people are like oh well (laughs) yeah maybe that was valuable
0: and sort of like you said you know at least now i think the market is changing where hopefully clients are more aware that this is something that they need to have. They need to get that outside perspective in order to make sure that the end product is better for, for everyone.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you, a lot of times you have folks in in companies, especially you know some of the larger companies uh, around the world, where they've been working on this, this product or this product line for multiple years. And they're just too close to it. Yeah. And, you know, having that outside perspective can really be very valuable for your product development process.
0: Yeah. Oh, my God. I worked with one nonprofit here in Atlanta. They shall remain nameless. But (laughs) I I worked with this one nonprofit. And I mean, they were, you know, they're very close to the work and what the work was about. And it was so hard to get them to look outside of that for other perspectives. But yet... They were always looking to those outside perspectives because they had money, and it's like, well, we need people to donate, but we don't necessarily want to take their advice. They don't know. They don't know what we're going through here. I'm like, well, why don't we tell them or show them? Like, show stories of, I'm, um, you know, if I say too much more, I'm going to divulge who it is. But right. yeah, it's right. it's important to be able to to kind of step outside of that to not be so closely wedded to the the work that you can't see anything else.
1: Absolutely. <clears throat> That's one of the things that is great about the work that we do. Is that yes, we can provide you know expert audits of, of their products and say, hey, based on our experience and best practices, these are some of the issues that we see. Mm-hmm. But even more valuable is having the quotes from their specific customers that say, you know, this is not what I want, or this is exactly what I want, you know, whatever the case may be. So it's not like. It's not that I hate your thing; it's that the people that you want to buy your thing <laughs> hate your thing. So,
0: well, maybe not hate. We don't want to. We don't want to be that strong. But you kind of have to let them know that this is what your users are saying. So, yeah, exactly. You mentioned school. You went to Georgia Tech, which is here in Atlanta. What was your time like there? I didn't know that they had a design program there. We'll go into that a little bit. But you started out there in industrial design. Talk about that for a little bit.
1: Well, actually, I started out there as a computer science major. Oh, okay. uh, I, I didn't know that they had the design program either <laughs> until I got there. Like, like you said, I grew up here, you know, from middle school on and Georgia Tech was an awesome school. And so I was like, yeah, always been a geek, always been a kind of a nerd. It's my, my dad's fault. I get it, honestly. So computer science was, was the thing and i got here and i started i started taking classes and they were interesting but they were not fulfilling mm-hmm. and you know walking back and forth across campus i stumbled through the college of architecture and saw some of the work that the industrial design program was pinning up and i was like this is what i've been looking for and it it seemed really cool and so i i changed my major
0: when i started at morehouse i think we were probably like in college right around the same time. You were in college in like 2000, something like that? hmm Yeah, yeah. I started in 99. So okay, it was the same way. I got to Morehouse. I started in computer science. It wasn't for me. And I ended up having to switch my major. Now, Morehouse didn't have a design program. And I remember trying to actually at one point, <laughs> at one point I was trying to transfer out. Because I was like, Oh well maybe my scholarship works somewhere else. It doesn't. Mm, but uh, I thought it did, you know, just didn't know. But yeah, I didn't know that Georgia Tech had design programs back then. That's kinda good to know about.
1: Yeah, it was it had been around for a good little while. Certainly it's much, much larger now than it than it was then. Yeah. They've had some great advances in, in that program and it's grown quite a bit. But yeah, it it was it was it was great when i was there i think we had 70 or 80 kids in in my graduating class in the in the design program okay. um, which was pretty good at that point we were i guess the the smaller as compared to architecture but i think yeah i think nowadays they're almost equal if not uh, a little bit larger on the design side than architecture hmm. which is nice to see the growth yeah uh, We had some great professors and and great classes, a a nice variety of classes. And one of the key benefits that I found when going to like IDSA conferences and that type of thing with other design schools was the fact that we had all those engineering departments at our school allowed us to have more of a technical background in our design work, which was invaluable because it meant that we were designing things that could actually be manufactured like didn't just look nice weren't just you know awesome forms but also we had some background in you know what electrical engineering needed to go into it or what mechanical engineering needed to go into this thing that we were designing so Mm -hmm. when i got out into the into the professional world i had some some background that that helped me quite a bit
0: so what were some of those classes? You said kind of earlier you learned a little bit about cognitive psychology. Now you're saying you also kind of had a tech background. Like what all sort of classes were you taking?
1: Well, I mean, the you know, you had the, the typical studio classes and that type of thing. But then there were also, so I took a, a human computer interface class that was kind of cross-listed with the CS department. So that was quite helpful. There were a handful of classes that, like I said, were kind of a, a I don't know, like a like a cross-listed class with, like a mechanical engineering class or an electrical engineering class. So you had folks who were double Es or ME's in a class with you, and mm-hmm. you did group projects where there were design students and engineering students that were grouped together again to make sure that you could share some of the knowledge that you. All had based on your your major, yeah. uh, and make sure that you were designing things that were robust and and manufacturable. Because there's nothing worse than designing something that looks awesome and then it can't be made, or yeah. it can't be it can't be made for a price that you
0: know people would be willing to pay. Yeah, that's for those students that go to art institute. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> I am so kidding. I'm not kidding. No, I'm kidding for real. No, that's that's good. So, once you graduated from Georgia Tech, what was your early career like? You were working as an industrial designer?
1: Yeah. So, I got a job right out of school at a product development firm up in Lawrenceville just north of Atlanta, and they designed and developed whole range of things, consumer products and medical devices and some commercial equipment, that type of thing. And that was awesome. I worked there for – well, actually, I started there working there, like interning there my senior year. And so I worked there for a total of about seven years. Got a bunch of utility patents, different from design patents, a couple of design patents uh, while I was there. But yeah, we got to work on a a whole bunch of different stuff and, you know, consultancy life is fun and interesting in in that regard and that you get to learn a lot about a lot of different industries and (laughs) every day is different.
0: Speaking of patents, we actually have a question here. This is from Sella Lewis, who she's been a guest on the show. She's also a writer for the site and a patron. She wanted to know when you were in industrial design, did you have any experience going through the design patent process? It kind of sounds like you did. Can you offer any advice for those interested in industrial design and design patents?
1: Advice? Yes. So I guess some procedural things, one, as you're doing your design work, date it, (laughs) sign it and date it. Um, one, you know, for documentation for your portfolio and that type of thing. And two, if you think at some point it, what you've created may be patentable, it's really important to make sure that you have that documentation because that's what the attorneys are going to ask for, right? Because they have to figure out, one, if, is there prior art? Is there have, have other people who have designed things that are similar you know, come up with the same idea before you did? Two, if you're not working by yourself, you're working as part of a team, they've got to figure out who is actually responsible for creating this intellectual property. I'm actually in the middle of going through that on a project that I worked on, oh goodness, maybe six years ago now, where the company filed for this patent and they're going to be awarded it, and there was some misunderstanding about who was responsible for designing it. So I had to go back and go back through my archives and like find the drawings that I made and myself and one of my other former colleagues were had to do the same thing, had to go back through his drawings and find the drawings that we made and basically present the case that yes, indeed some of my ideas and some of his ideas and some of, you know, another Former coworkers' ideas kind of merged together into the final embodiment of the product that this company manufactured and are filing a patent on. So keep good records is, okay. the, is the is the main thing. As far as like what you do after that point, typically the attorneys will handle most of the heavy lifting. They'll they'll take your drawings, your renderings, whatever the uh, documentation that you have, and they will either submit it as is or they will use it to as a guideline for the patent drawings that they will actually submit with the application so those patent drawings are done in a particular manner in a particular format so they probably won't use exactly what you created but it'll be like i said it'll be a a guideline to for what they create for that patent application (laughs) and then they file it and then you wait (laughs) You wait a couple of years usually, and uh, eventually, if it's granted, then you'll get a you'll get a letter in the mail uh, saying congratulations. That's pretty neat, but again, the patent office isn't particularly quick, especially nowadays. <laughs> so don't don't hold your breath on that.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it's a lengthy process. It is. How long did it take for your patents?
1: Some were faster than others. I'd say average, it was two or three years.
0: Okay. So not too long, but people should know it's not a quick submission kind of process where you're going to hear something right away.
1: No, not typically.
0: Okay. I guess they kind of have to research it and find out if there's something similar out there. Is that kind of what takes a long time? Do you know?
1: Uh, I think it's partially that and it's partially just the sheer number of submissions that they get. There's just a a lot to work through. There's a, a pretty big backlog as I understand it. But, yes, there's certainly a a good bit of document review uh, to make sure that, you know, somebody else didn't already, you know, have a file a patent and have got awarded a patent for the same uh, the same type of thing.
0: And I would imagine that doesn't even stop people from trying to manufacture it or sell it. I'm thinking mostly of infomercials in this case. Uh Uh Uh, You'll often see like patent pending or something like that. So Uh, it doesn't doesn't, I guess, stop it from going to market at least.
1: No, not at all.
0: Interesting. Huh.
1: Not at all. In fact, you know, the whole patent pending thing can not, can sometimes be a uh, a benefit, a marketing benefit. Because, you know, some people think, hey, this might be this might be patented or it's on the on the way to being patented. So it, it must be a it must be a great, you know, great new widget.
0: Right? Interesting. Huh. I could see that. I could see that. So you started out as an industrial designer. You did industrial design for seven years with this company. Now you're doing UX. What was that transition like? How did you make that transition?
1: (laughs) So the transition was actually easier than I expected it to be. So I told you, I started as a computer science major at tech. Interestingly enough, after I transferred to industrial design, uh, I met a guy who was running a freelance web design uh, company, and he was about to graduate and move to Japan. And he said, you know, I can't service my clients anymore. Do you want them? And I said, (laughs) exactly. I said, well, sure, I'll (laughs) I'll take them. Yes. And so I started a freelance web design company, and that's kind of where... I guess some of the background for my transition into UX came from, I knew how to code. I knew how to design for the web. And so the only thing that was really different from product design was the fact that oftentimes the products are digital instead of physical. Right. So aside from that, the design process is nearly identical. You like to start out with research, kind of understand the problem, understand if you should be designing this thing or not, and once you decide that you are or you should, then you kind of decide. Then you kind of research. You know, well, what are the issues that are that your potential customers are having, and you know, design solutions for them.
0: Yeah.
1: you do some manner of. of <laughs> concept development you do some manner of, of prototyping uh, ideally you test those prototypes with the with the users and as you get closer to refining that product or that concept then you you shift it over to uh to engineering in in the product development world or you are f- development in the in the software or digital product world and then once that's done you do some some qa testing right and and then you you get ready to, to release it to market. So the key difference is uh is you know the the embodiment of the product and the development timeline. Product development is typically much longer in the development timeline than uh, than digital products are. But other than that, it was relatively uh, relatively seamless.
0: Interesting. I think now they just call that whole process like what design thinking, sort of like being able to apply those design processes across a number of things. But I yeah. think it's, it's interesting that the the process itself is not that different. I sometimes will tell people that to me, like I have more of a like math and science background. Like my mom's a biologist, my dad's an engineer and I majored in math. So when I was going into design, I came into it mostly from an analytical kind of standpoint. Like I saw it as an equation to solve. <laughs> and so it, it does feel like to me that the design process has some, Some correlation and analogies to like the scientific method, at least is how it relates to research. You know, you're doing the research, you're gathering data, you're testing a hypothesis, et cetera, et cetera. It's very similar to interviewing users and getting that information so you can sort of present that back to the client so they can see whether or not this is a direction that they need to go on.
1: Absolutely. I mean, there's definitely people who practice specifically kind of hypothesis-based design, right, where they, as opposed to just going out and looking for input from end users or stakeholders uh, as a way to define the problem and, you know, what they should start to design around. Basically, they, they make a hypothesis and say, this is what we think is the issue, or this is what we think could be the solution, and they build something, and then they test against that and try and, you know, prove themselves right or wrong, as the case may be.
0: When did you sort of have this this moment where you knew that this was what you wanted to do for a living? I mean, starting out wanting to do computer science and then industrial engineering and now kind of transitioning into UX. When did it sort of click for you that this was this is what you want to do?
1: There's a point in time in my career as a industrial designer that a lot of the new projects that we were doing had digital interfaces as a as a component. So there was that part. There was also the fact that what we talked about earlier, where you know clients oftentimes, at least in the past, have balks at the idea of doing front-end research, and we started to, we started to have more and more of that,
0: mm-hmm. and that
1: really really irked me. One of my former coworkers, you know, left this design firm that we were at and went to this UX firm that I'm currently at, and she was like, "Hey, we do real research, <laughs> and we we actually talk to the people and get." their feedback before we start designing things and i was like you are speaking my language <laughs> so yeah i mean the the kind of the combination of those those two things being able to actually talk to users and understand you know where they're coming from and empathize with them about you know the the troubles that they're having or the the things that they'd like to be able to do with a particular mm-hmm. product or service and and then you know translating that into something that will make their lives easier is really what makes going to work every day, you know, fantastic.
0: Nice. All right. So let's kind of switch gears here for a minute. Uh, What are you most excited about at the moment?
1: So I am most excited about an upcoming design summit that myself and a a few of my friends as part of the Hue Collective are putting on this week. It's uh, called the Hue Design Summit. It's a small Unconference for designers of color, and um, we're having it here in Atlanta, and that's really exciting for us.
0: How did you all first get the idea to do that, something like that?
1: <laughs> I've thought about that a lot. Interestingly enough, several of us that are in the collective are actually Georgia Tech grads. So I'm not sure whether it's a function of going to a a PWI or what, but A few years after uh, all of us graduated, we were just kind of thinking about ways to build stronger connections between designers of color. And one of the members of our group, Alfonso, created a a GroupMe group called Blacks in Design and started inviting folks that he knew that were designers. And that kind of online group uh, continued to grow and continues to grow at this point. And, you know, that was nice and it was, it was great, but we thought, you know, that's, it's not quite the same having relationships online as it is, you know, in person. Yeah. And so, you know, we kind of just thought, what could we do something in person that wouldn't conflict with, you know, the many other groups that do conferences or do, you know, meetups or that type of thing. And so this is what we decided on. And we had our inaugural our inaugural summit last year, and it was fantastic. And our next one is coming up.
0: Yeah, from uh, last year, I think Jacinda Walker, who has been on the show, she was one of the the keynote speakers, right?
1: She was, she was, and she was fantastic. We had a really great, really great time. She led us through an awesome talk, and uh, has actually served as kind of a an ongoing advisor for us since uh, since last year, and it's been fantastic.
0: Nice. What have you all learned since putting on this event?
1: <laughs> oh, goodness. So putting on an event like this, it takes a lot more than you originally expected to all the various details and logistics. I'm not sure that we really fully understood what, what all was involved with it when we first started, but it, like I said, it was a, it was a learning experience and uh, I think this year is going to be even better than last year and really It's been great to see the response that we've gotten both from the folks who attended last year as well as, you know, folks that we talked to about it since then. You know, we've had lots and lots of support from both uh, kind of the designers of color as well as, you know, some who who aren't. In fact, we had uh, myself and another one of the members of Hugh James went out to the Layers Conference in San Jose just last week at the invite of one of the conference organizers just as a, as a way to support us and, and what we were trying to do. And she was like, you know, I love what you guys are doing. If we, we can help if in any way, that's, we'd be glad to. So yeah, it's, it's been fantastic the, the response and what people are saying about it.
0: Wow. That's, that's pretty cool. So they invited you out just to kind of see how it all goes and everything.
1: Yeah, exactly. Just kind of see how they run their show and they you know, offer to help us in the future with referrals for speakers and, and that type of thing as well. Now, obviously, their conference is, is, is much more grand than, than ours is at this point. I think they are in their 10th or so year and they had uh, maybe 150 or more people at the conference last week and speakers from around the world, which were fantastic. But any help and recognition is is always appreciated.
0: Well, I think, honestly, it's great that they even have done that. And I don't say that to say for them specifically, but look, there was a time, I would say, when I was first starting Revision Path about five years ago, and I think it's still kind of an issue, but I think the perception of the issue has gotten better. But there was a time when, you know, these conferences would put out their speaker panels or whatever. Someone would mention maybe on Twitter, like, hey... Where are the black people? Where are the Mm. brown people? Mm -hmm. And the response would be so hateful and so vile. Oftentimes coming from the conference organizers themselves about like, how dare you bring that up? That sort of thing. And I mean, I've even gotten, I mean, dozens (laughs) of inquiries over the years from events that are like, we're trying to diversify our speaker roster. Who can we reach out to? But oftentimes, they're looking at diversity as kind of a a last minute add on. Uh So after they've already exhausted most of their budget or the rest of the programs planned out, now it's like, Oh, we should probably sprinkle in some melanin in here so people don't get mad. And I think at (laughs) one point, I think at one point there was a time when some conferences were bringing on people of color just so they could avoid that kind of bad PR. I know there was one conference in particular out of, uh, I think it was out of Texas. I want to say it was the circles conference Mm. where the guy that ran that just went like ballistic on Twitter about it. So the fact that a conference of that stature would reach out just to say, Hey, we see that you're a smaller event doing this sort of thing. And we want to help out in that sort of way. I think that is huge. That's amazing that they would even offer their resources like that. Cause oftentimes they expect the reciprocal thing. They want you as the small entity to help them out. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it it was really awesome. Jesse, the lady, the organizer that that contacted us, you know, we had a chance to talk to her while we were there and she, you know, she was really, really genuine and really, really awesome in terms of her willingness to support what we were doing. It definitely didn't seem like she was like putting on or, or being, in disingenuous about it because the, some of the speakers that they had at that conference were talking specifically about diversity and inclusion on a number of levels. So it's obviously something that you know they feel like is important, and and you know it's like like I said, it's just great to see.
0: Yeah, well, let's kind of bring it back to Hugh. What can people expect from the Hugh Design Summit this year?
1: So we have a uh, it's Thursday through Sunday, and we've got a great uh, lineup of speakers. (laughs) You may be familiar and and many of uh, your audience may be familiar with, uh, with Gail Anderson. She is one of our keynote speakers this year. And we feel incredibly blessed to have her agree to come and speak to our attendees. We've got a marketing and design specialist. We've got a couple of UX researchers and designers coming to talk as well. Uh, we've got you know some some catered meals uh, by a private chef and just some opportunities to to sit down and, and converse and just get to know each other so that you know at the end of the conference, you can say that not only did you learn some things, not only did you have some fun but you met some people and, and come to you know be friends and you can leave with you know more connections that are real and, and deep and genuine yeah. uh, at, at the end of the day. But that was something that was really important to us because we've all been to conferences before and and a lot of times, you know, you, you see people in passing or you, you sit at a table with them, but you don't really get to know them. You all listen to the same stuff. You might go out to lunch or to dinner once or twice, but there's not really the opportunity to kind of grow in that relationship. And so that's what we wanted to try and foster and that's why it's kind of a smaller event it's it's smaller by design.
0: Yeah, I was going to mention like it is it's a pretty small I want to say it's maybe like 30 35 people something like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's about that's about the cap this year. We may expand it in future years, but I think at this point that's about the size that we want to try and shoot for, so that again, you can, you can meet everybody. You can know everybody at the end of the weekend. uh, Mm -hmm. And it's not, you know, one of those things where I know I've talked to you, but I can't remember your name Mm -hmm. kind of thing. So.
0: No, I think, I think that's great. I mean, I've certainly seen similar types of events like that where they try to cap the attendees at a certain number to keep that sort of intimate feel, you know, so I think that's that's a great thing, and certainly I think as you all kind of get more word out about it, get more sponsors, et cetera, you can think about if you want to increase that or if you still want to keep it this kind of exclusive sort of thing. I mean, I think TED only has what fifteen hundred attendees or something like that every year, mm-hmm. and people know about that all over the world. So, right, you right. know, don't feel like you have to. I'm not saying I'm necessarily giving advice, but like you know, don't feel like you have to grow it out bigger if it's working at the size that you're doing it at like keep it going at that size maybe look at how you can replicate that same sort of capsule experience in other locations Uh, absolutely you know
1: and that's that's something that's something that we are uh, we're investigating for for the future is more than likely keeping it about the same size but maybe having more than one a year or in a couple of different locations around the country
0: yeah now you grew up here in atlanta Went to school in Atlanta. I've been here in Atlanta since ninety nine ish, or about ninety nine or so. What is the design community like for you here?
1: That's an interesting question. So, and it's partially because I've kind of bounced between design communities. Uh huh. So I would have said if you had asked me a few years back when I was doing industrial design, I would have probably given you a different answer. But I think. At this point the design community in Atlanta is flourishing especially in UX and graphic design. Everybody seems to be looking for UX designers in all the major companies around the city. You know, obviously Georgia Tech is cranking out designers, SCAD has is cranking out designers. I think even Georgia State has, you know, some some design programs there. So we've got a lot of kids coming out of school with design backgrounds and we've got a lot of startups and technology companies that may have been founded on the West Coast or elsewhere in the country that are opening up offices here in Atlanta, partially because of, of kind of tech and the technology hub here and the, the awesome engineers that they have here. But also, I think, because of the design community and the fact that it is growing.
0: Is there something you'd like to see more of here?
1: Hmm, Something I'd like to see more of. I'd like to see more, more design consultancies. To be honest, and companies that get recognition here in Atlanta, there are a number of design companies, and obviously around the country. And I feel like, you know, especially when it comes to design awards and recognition and that type of thing, it's typically companies that are elsewhere that get that recognition. Yeah. Um, And I don't think that's because the designers here are not qualified or not good enough. In fact, the opposite. I think that we have a phenomenal, a phenomenal skill base here. I'm not sure why we haven't gotten the recognition that, that I think we're due.
0: I agree. I really do agree, especially about more design consultancies. Uh, Last year, I decided I would sort of wind my studio down and just do consulting and things. And I took a job at Fall Creek Software, which I'm at now. And it was amazing. Like I know there's a lot of studios here. Of course, we've got, you know, big agencies, JWT, BBDO, etc. I was surprised there was not more kind of design consultancy stuff because for me, that's been what that's been what my background has been. You know, right. running running an agency and talking to clients about that sort of work. And I wanted to be able to do that similar sort of thing. And I mean, there are like management companies like a PWC. Or an Ernst Young that might be looking for consultants, but it's not specifically around design. Atlanta's kind of a weird slash tough market for that kind of stuff. Like, I feel like if I was in New York or San Francisco, I wouldn't have this problem. Right. But Atlanta in and of itself has been growing in so many different industries in entertainment and biotech, et cetera. Mm. I would like to see that more, too. Definitely more design consultancies because... I don't know if I would say that Atlanta is a city that doesn't appreciate design. I think if anything, given how Atlanta is designed, we are grossly aware of the consequences of both good and bad design as it relates to a number of different areas. I mean, transportation most specifically. Uh, (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) So, yeah, I'd like to see kind of more of that here. I know we just recently had the Atlanta Design Festival and... It's mostly around like architecture and urban planning for the most part. I think at one point it was called Atlanta Design Week, but they sort of like shifted it a little bit. It's a nice event, but it is mostly just for like architecture and stuff. So if you go into it as a a web designer, a graphic designer, you'll be like, yeah, this isn't really what I thought it would be. And Atlanta has all of the trappings to have like a proper, like a like a San Francisco design week or a New York design week or something, we could totally do something like Absolutely. that. I'm surprised no one's really sort of taken the reins on that.
1: <laughs> do I hear you volunteering, Maurice?
0: No, you don't hear me volunteering. <laughs> I'm merely putting it out there in the universe for someone else to pick. I got enough shit on my plate. Okay, <laughs> Don't get me wrong. People are always asking me, like, well, why haven't you done this? Why haven't you done that? There's only so many hours in the day to do stuff. It's, it's a nice thought. Don't get me wrong. I would, I think it would be great to be able to spearhead something like that. I don't think I have the time and the resources to do that, but maybe, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's a good idea. I would, I would just like to see it, but I'm not the person to do it. Not right now. I'd have to, some things would definitely have to shift in order for that to happen. So fair enough. (laughs) What keeps you motivated and inspired in your design work.
1: Oh, <laughs> when I was back in school and kind of just getting into industrial design, there was a there was a website that I found that uh, it was called Better Living by Design. And they would post, you know, cool designs of all sorts and kind of add some commentary about what they posted. And the premise behind the site really really hit me, it was really, I've kind of ingrained it in my, in my psyche. And that has really been the focus of my career kind of since then is trying to improve people's lives through design. So when it was in product design, it was trying to make this medical device, you know, the best that it can be so that it can help whoever's going to be using it, do what they need to do or help design this, this grill uh, in a, such a way that it's going to make barbecuing in your backyard the best experience that it can be and improve your life through that so and now that i'm doing u x it's it's really the same thing you know help this help design this this banking app to be the best that it can be, so that you know when i'm when i'm moving money or when i'm paying bills it's as easy as it can possibly be and i don't i don't have any confusion and that type of thing,
0: okay. Do you have a dream project that you're you're doing now or that you would love to to do one day?:
1: Oh, I do have a dream project that I would like to do. Uh, I'm a type 1 diabetic, and I guess the, the dream project for me would be to work on a medical device that would help uh, you know fellow diabetics like myself in the management of this invisible
0: disease. Talk to me about that project.
1: (laughs) Well, so there are, as a type one diabetic, you, your pancreas doesn't function the way it should. It doesn't produce, it doesn't produce insulin anymore. Mm -hmm. So you have to, you have to give yourself insulin every day in order to live. There's no cure for it at this point in time. So you're either taking injections or you use uh, an insulin pump to, deliver that insulin to you throughout the day and every time you have to eat. In addition, because the insulin kind of breaks down the sugars that you eat, mm-hmm. you have to make sure that your blood sugar level is within a certain range. If it's too high, go into a coma and you die. If it's too low, you have cardiac arrest and you die. <laughs> so you got to kind of keep it in this sweet spot. Uh-huh. Um, and there's, you know, there are technologies out there now that help you to monitor it so that it's easier to kind of tr- keep track of currently. But the ideal uh, the ideal scenario is basically an, an artificial pancreas, something that would deliver insulin when you need it and would stop the insulin and deliver something like glucagon, which would allow you to raise your blood sugar if you need it based on what your blood sugar is doing, whether it's going up or whether it's going down. Working on medical device like that, that that could really replace the pancreas would be my dream, my dream job, my dream design project.
0: Have you heard of Scott Hanselman? Does that name sound familiar?
1: That name does sound familiar.
0: He has a podcast, too. It's called Hansel Minutes, and he works for Microsoft. I think he's a a program manager. I'm sure I'm getting his title wrong, but he works for Microsoft. But he's also a type one diabetic, and he's talked a lot about kind of like the state of diabetes technology and hacking diabetes and stuff. I think that I remember there's one post where he was talking about something he sort of put together based off of a, like a raspberry pie or something like basically he made his own glucose meter sort of uh-huh. Um, really interesting stuff. If you want to check it out, I'll, I'll tell you about a little bit more after the interview, but he might be someone to, to look towards if you're looking for either collaboration or just ideas or something like that. And Scott's like, super cool guy. He's based out of Portland. I want to say, I think he's based out of Portland. Yeah. Cool guy though. Yeah.
1: Interesting. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's a, there's a fantastic kind of DIY community that's doing some awesome things for diabetes management. I fortunately found them a couple of years back and have tried to do all I can to support, uh, that endeavor. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually using uh, some of the, uh, some of the devices that, they have, uh, they've developed, it's been fantastic, but yeah, there's, there's definitely still some, still some steps to go before we get to, you know, the, the ideal, the ideal situation, obviously barring being able to grow a new pancreas.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like you mentioned this particular project, but even what you're doing right now with Hugh and with, uh, the work you're doing at user insight, where do you see yourself in the next five years? that's tough
1: in the next five years really I'd like to just feel like I've'm I've, coming close to, to mastering this craft you know UX is is an industry that's going to be changing I think in the next five to ten years pretty rapidly I mean there's the whole advent of the UI as no UI especially with you know some of these uh, you know your Amazon echo and your google home and mm-hmm. and that type of thing, so I think and and even beyond that kind of virtually virtual reality and augmented reality it 's going to be interesting to see how those how those new technologies change you know human 's interaction with with physical and, and and digital products, so making sure that i 'm up to speed and and kind of pushing the boundaries of what 's possible in in those regards is one thing that I'd like to make sure that I'm doing and, and then two, helping the Hue collective and, and the and the design summit to grow and over the course of the next several years. Making sure that this isn't just kind of a, a fly by night thing, but that, you know, we we gain some momentum and, and and keep growing and making sure that not only do folks that are currently in this in the industry see it and, and get involved and, and help it to grow, but also, you know, reaching back to, you know, high schoolers and middle schoolers and kind of get, giving them the exposure to what's possible so that, you know, we have we have more people joining the field. You know, that's certainly something that I wish that I had had when I was in high school. I probably would have come into college as an industrial designer as opposed to having to change my major, you know, two, two years in. Because mm-hmm. obviously, you know... If you, if you don't see it, then you don't necessarily know that you can be it. So, yeah, just, just increasing the exposure to the various design disciplines that are out there and, and giving examples of, of people who look like me and look like you that are actually doing it.
0: Nice. Nice. Well, Shaw, just to sort of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online?
1: On Twitter, I am designer shaw, and on Instagram, I'm Designershaw06. I've got a website, shawstruthers.com, and uh, as far as uh, uh, type 1 diabetes stuff goes, I've got a, a website called uh, typewonderful.net, and we sell t-shirts to inspire and empower type 1 diabetics and raise money for diabetes research, so.
0: And uh, what about Hugh Design Summit? You want people to check that out?
1: Absolutely. So the Hugh Design Summit. It's uh, the website is hughdesignsummit and you can find all about, find out all about that event, and see all, who all is involved.
0: Nice. Yeah, we're sponsoring this year for people that are listening. I wish I could be able to be there because I'm going to be at Podcast Movement, unfortunately during that time. But I think it's important, certainly, to support what other folks are doing for events like this. Like we sponsored black and design mm. last year. So it's just important to make sure that we're helping each other out for this sort of stuff. So Shaw Struthers, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I want to thank you for, you know, not only sort of sharing your story about how you started out in industrial design and transitioning into UX, but you know, also it's really good to see that you and what you're doing with the Hugh design summit, and even with the work that you're doing around your type one diabetes is about, kind of using the tools that we have to help build community and to increase awareness. I think, I always think that's super important. And um, yeah, it's really good to hear that you're doing this kind of work right here in Atlanta. We need to hear more stories about stuff like that here. So yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Shaw Struthers and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Shaw and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. With a community of over 2 billion people, the design team at Facebook works on a diverse range of problems. Everything that Facebook designs is done at scale, so research, content strategy, data, and other factors are a huge part of how they work. Sound interesting? Then learn more about Facebook Design and what they do at facebook.com forward slash design. Glitch is the friendly community where you'll build the web app of your dreams. Now, if you've seen Glitch, you might think it looks like a toy, but let me tell you, it's not. It runs on the exact same infrastructure and engine that the best developers in the world use to run their apps. And it's all built around a friendly community of coders, designers, developers, artists, activists, and educators. Basically, people just like you. So get started on making something awesome today at Glitch.com. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's largest marketing automation platform. They support millions of customers from small e-commerce shops to big online retailers, and they support the creative community as well. MailChimp really gives you the marketing tools to be yourself on a bigger stage. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you like this episode, then please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute or two. It helps more people learn about the show here in the U.S. and internationally. It helps the show by bumping us up in the rankings there for Design podcasts, And I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, if you're listening to this and you want to hear next week's episode a little early, then you should become our patron over at Patreon. Now more than ever, Revision Path needs your support to make sure that stories about Black designers and creatives in our field are being told in their own words. So if you support us, if you support our mission, just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge today. For just $5 a month, you can get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, upcoming articles, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.